Amen. Amen. I invite you guys to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I really love uh, hearing you guys sing on Sunday morning, hearing you guys worship the Lord. It's a wonderful noise uh, to hear in the morning. Uh, yesterday morning at 7 a.m., uh, mine and Kenzie's uh, uh, smoke alarm uh, went off because of the battery was low. And so at 7 a.m. it started beep, beep, you know, very loudly, very obnoxiously. Uh, and that's not a joyful noise to hear in the morning. But this is <laughs> a joyful noise to hear in the morning. I love hearing you guys worship and praise the Lord together. It's a wonderful noise to hear, wonderful uh, sound of singing and praise to God. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, four is where we're going to be continuing on uh, our series in Ecclesiastes, looking at Solomon's pursuit of meaning, purpose, and value in life. Solomon is, is looking at the world, and he's trying to figure out if there's anything with meaning, purpose, and value here. And so he's continuing that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to be this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either child, uh, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it challenges us, that it, it, it challenges the way that we think about the world, the way we think about our lives, God, that it, it forces us to come to terms with with who we are and who you are, God, I thank you for the opportunity to, to hear from you, God, that you didn't leave us stranded without any uh, un understanding of who you are, but God, you decided to reveal yourself through your word, Father. I pray this morning that we would learn more about you, God, that we would have our eyes lifted up and we would, we would come to a better understanding of who you are. And because of that, God, I pray we would come to a better understanding of who we are. God, I pray that we would know what you're doing in the world, God, so that we know how we should act and how we should live in light of that. God, I pray that you would shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus because of our time with the word. God, I pray we would leave here better than when we came in because we spent time in your word listening to you, hearing from you. God, I pray you'd give us ears to hear what you're saying to us and hearts that are ready to apply it. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I have a cousin who, growing up, was obsessed with football. 
Like he loved football. He wanted to be a football player. Uh, that was always what he, ever since I remember, ever since I can remember, he, he wanted to play football. He was a year younger than me. And so all growing up, he loved football, wanted to play football. Every time we were together and our families were together for Christmas or Thanksgiving or anything like that, we'd go play football. Like just loved the game of football. Uh, and ever since I remember, he, that was his passion. That's what captured his heart, right? He wanted to be a football player. And what do you know about football players when you're little? You know that they are big and strong, right? That's, that's what you know. When you're four years old, if you want to be a football player, you have to be big and strong. And so my cousin, wanting to become a football player, would shovel food down his mouth. Like, would, would it really quickly would eat a ton of food because he wanted to get big and strong so he could play football. I remember one, uh, one time, <laughs> our families took a trip to, to Disney World uh, when we were little. And we went out to eat at an Italian restaurant uh, for, for dinner one night. And I, I'm not kidding, before the waiter could come around and ask if we wanted Parmesan on our food, like he had already finished his bowl. Like he scarfed down his pasta so quick. I've never seen anyone eat pasta as quickly as my cousin did that night. Uh, and again, I'm, uh, he's like five years old at this point, but he wants to be a football player. So he's shoveling food down his throat and, uh, and wanting more. Problem is, when you eat food that quickly, especially at five years old, you get a little sick. Uh, and so as quickly as the food down, it went down, it came back, and uh, we were not the favorite from the waitstaff <laughs> that, that night uh, at that restaurant. But, but the question is, why would my cousin endure the nausea, the, the pain of eating food quickly and eating a lot of food? Why would he endure all of the workouts and all of the, the muscle fatigue from all the two-a-days? Why would he endure all of that? Uh, he endured all of that because... The, the thought of becoming a football player, the thought of playing the sport that he loved captured his heart. He wanted to be a football player. That, that, was, that captured his heart. That captured his affection. That captivated his mind. He wanted to be a football player. And because of that, he was willing to endure things that he otherwise wouldn't have endured. He was willing to endure nausea and, and sickness. He was willing to endure two-a-days and the muscle fatigue. He was willing to endure all of those things because what had captured his heart was being a football player. And here's the truth. What captures your heart controls your life. What, what takes your heart, what, what captivates your mind, that is going to control how you live and how you think. That's going to control the things that you do. What you set your affections on and what grabs your attention, that controls your life. Solomon and his search for meaning and purpose and value in life has been looking at, at everything under the sun. He's been looking at everything in life, trying to find meaning, trying to find value. And on his search, he's found three things that tend to capture our hearts, three things that tend to, to captivate our minds. And, and as you could probably guess, based on the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, he finds them empty. These three things that, that tend to capture our hearts and capture so many of our hearts and minds, uh, he's, he finds them coming up empty, short of meaning, purpose, and value. And so what we're going to see this morning is, is we're going to look at those three things. What are the three things that Solomon says captures our hearts and ultimately come up empty? The first one is this, justice. Justice captures our hearts and ultimately comes up empty. Look at me in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, now justice is something that, that captures a lot of hearts and a lot of minds today. 
Right? It is a it is a buzzword in our in our culture, a buzzword in our country. Like there are we we have a desire and a longing for justice. We we recognize the injustices in the world. We're 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 hypersensitive to the fact that we live in a in an un- unjust world. Right, that there are injustices, that there are oppressors and there are oppressed, that there are people with power and people without it. We live in, we li- we, we, we live in a culture and a society that recognizes the, the imbalances and the problems and the evil and the wickedness and the, and the injustice. We see it happening. And so, so many people in our culture, so many people in our society have justice on their minds. That's what's capturing their hearts. They see the brokenness in the world. They see the injustices taking place and they want to fix it. And that becomes their controlling desire. That, that captures their mind, that captures their heart, and so they live in line with that fact, that they want to see justice in the world. If you've seen people fighting for justice, right, th- this could be a personal justice, right, this could be uh, other, you know, otherwise known as revenge, people who are, whose whole idea of life, the thing that's grabbing them is a desire for revenge for what happened to them, the injustices that they've faced, the, the, the oppressions that they've endured, they want to get justice for themselves, or they want to get justice for other people, they want to step up and speak up and, and stand up for these people, that there's a, a longing and a desire to, to, to see justice in our community and to see justice in our world, and that's what, what drives so many people, that's what captures so many hearts, and if your heart is seeking justice, if that's what's captured your attention, that's what's captivated your mind, then you're willing to endure a lot to get it. Right? You're willing to endure opposition and suffering and struggle. I think of s- stories of so many, uh, so many lawyers who have, who have fought uh, through, throughout the decades and throughout the centuries in America to, to, to fight against uh, racism and, and other injustices in our country and the, the opposition. Yeah, that was good. It's like a pit stop in a race, you know. <laughs> I'm going to start making this a regular thing on Sunday mornings. Am I on? Good? All right. Back to what I was saying. I, what you would expect, or at least what I would expect Solomon to say, uh, is I would expect him to look at the injustice in the world and say, hey, that's not right. We should, we should try to fix it. We should try to, to make it better. We should, try to, we should try to end the injustice. We should make it our life's purpose and our life's desire to try to, to solve all of these problems. But that isn't what Solomon says. Solomon says, I see the brokenness. I see the wickedness. I see the evil. And notice what he says in verse 2. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And better than both of them is the one who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. What Solomon says is we live in a broken, wicked, unjust world. And that's it. Like, that's true. (laughs) That is how it is. Our world is broken. Our world is unjust. Our world is is messed up. And and no matter how much we fight for justice, no matter how hard we, we, we try to fix what's broken in the world, ultimately we're not going to fix it. We may be able to help this person or that person. We may, be, we may be able to solve this problem or that problem. But there have been people who have been complaining and whining about the injustice in the world who have recognized the brokenness and the hurt and have had broken hearts and broken minds for the, for the hurt and the pain that's going on in the world. They've been seeing it and looking at it for thousands of years. Solomon wrote this 3,000 years ago. People have noticed the hurt and the broken in the world. They've noticed the injustice, and they've been fighting against it for thousands of years, and we're not progressing towards utopia. 
We're not building towards some beautiful, perfect future where if we just solve this problem and this problem, then things are going to be perfect and things are going to be right. The reality is that no matter how much we fight injustice, the world is going to remain unjust. Brokenness is still going to exist. Pain and suffering, oppression and oppressors are still going to exist no matter how hard we fight. And so if your whole goal in life is justice, if that's what captures your heart, and that's what your whole life is aimed towards, then what's going to happen is you might help a few people, and you might help society with this problem or that problem, but you're going to die, and the world's still going to be messed up. So when, as Solomon pointing, is pointing out, even a heart for justice, as good as that is, and as wonderful as it is to long for justice and to seek justice in our world, if that's the thing that captures our heart and that's the thing that guides our life, ultimately it's empty. Ultimately it's going to come up flat because the world is going to remain unjust. The world is going to remain broken. We're not going to reach some utopia if, if enough of us can just figure this out. So no matter how great justice is and no matter how great of a heart that is, Ultimately, it's an empty endeavor in life. Solomon says the second thing that, that tends to capture our hearts and change uh, the way that we live is riches. Something that, that captures our hearts and captivates our minds is, is the desire for more stuff. <laughs> Notice with me in verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon says, the reason so many of us work so hard is because we want to keep up with the Joneses. Like the reason that we are, uh, so many of us put a lot of effort and work into, uh, into our work is we see it as, as a way to get rich, as a way to, to acquire wealth, as a way to buy nicer things, get a nicer car, get a nicer house, build a bank account, get, get bigger passive income checks. Like when we look at our job, when we look at our work, we are looking for things that the, the main thing that drives so many of us is a desire for riches, a desire for wealth, to amass more stuff. And Solomon points out a lot of that is from us looking around at the lives other people are living and saying, hey, I want that. Like, I, want a, I want a house that's that nice. I want a car that's, that's that nice. I want to take vacations like they do. I want to have passive income like them. I want to have a portfolio like that person. I want to I have a bank account and financial security like so-and-so. I, I want to have that life. And so you're looking around at the lives of the people around you and saying, I want, I want what they have. And so I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put in a lot of effort. I'm going to be really smart with my money. I'm going to sacrifice today so that I can get what they have. So I, can, so I can get that nicer house, get that nicer car, get that better portfolio, get that financial security. I, the thing that has captivated our hearts, the thing that captures our hearts, captivates our minds, is a desire for wealth. Desire for riches. And Solomon says that is vain and folly. Not vain as in, as in self-serving, but vain as in empty and hollow. He says, if our whole goal is to, to work really hard so that we can have what somebody else has, we're going to do that for the rest of our life, and then we'll die, right? For the rest of our life, we're going to be trying to, to, to measure up to somebody else. There's always going to be somebody who has something nicer than us. There's always going to be somebody who has something in life that we want, and so we'll continue to work hard, and we'll continue to sacrifice, and we'll continue to, to put things away, and we'll continue to, to, to try to elevate our financial status. We'll keep doing that over and over and over again for the rest of our life, giving up pleasures, giving up, uh, giving up the joys of today to sacrifice in order to get these things, and we'll keep doing that, and we'll never reach a point 
where we say, you know what? I'm good. I'm, I'm the guy that people are looking to now. I'm, I don't, there's nothing else in the world that I want. So Solomon says, if, if, the, if riches and wealth, if that's what captivates our heart, if that's, what, if that's what captures us, if that's what guides our life, it's empty. If that's the reason we work, then we might as well not work. Because the work that we're doing is empty. It's devoid of meaning and purpose and value if the reason we're doing it is just to get more stuff. Solomon says, he continues, and his, uh, his argument is fascinating to me. He continues in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is a proverb. Uh, is there are several similar proverbs actually in the book of Proverbs. And Solomon writes, uh, what he's saying here is, is if, you, if you fold your hands and you decide not to work, then you're going to die of starvation. Right? So if you're reading Solomon's point up to this, you could say, well, why work at all? Right? Like, if the work we're doing is, is empty of meaning and purpose and value, and if most of us are doing it for the wrong reasons anyways, and it's just l- it, it, is, it is producing nothing for our lives, if, if, that's why, if that's what we're doing, that's what work produces, why work at all? And the next thing Solomon says is, well, if you don't work, you'll die. Like that's, the, that's his next argument. Like you need to work because you need money and you need to be able to buy food. Right? That's, so if you don't work, only a fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Right? Only a fool folds his hands and dies of starvation. So Solomon, Solomon's pointing out here, I, you need to work. I get that, n- that work is necessary. It is a necessary part of life. But that doesn't make it any more meaningful. That doesn't make it any more purposeful or valuable. Just because you have to work doesn't mean that, that work produces meaningful, eternal impacts. Just because you have to work and just because you have to earn a paycheck doesn't mean that that paycheck and that growth in wealth, that growth in riches, doesn't mean that that produces any more meaning, purpose, or value for you. Solomon is reminding us that, that work is a, a regular part of life, but it is still something that is inherently meaningless, purposeless, and valuable if we're looking at an eternal perspective. Something we've talked a lot about through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll continue to talk about it more. But he's looking at this, and and it's not a glowing endorsement of work or riches, and he continues on in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Another proverb, and he's pointing out that, that even though work is a necessary part of life, he's once again reminding us it is much better to not work than to work. Like, not work is more fun. (laughs) <laughs> not work is more enjoyable. Rest and leisure and vacation and, t- and, and, and pleasures in the world. Like that is, that feels better than work. Once again, he's reminding us in this, in this pattern, this, uh, this argument that he's making, that, that even though we have to work, even though it's an essential part of life, it is, work is something that is inherently lacking in meaning, purpose, and value for us. And the riches that we can obtain from it, the, the wealth that we can gain, when those capture our hearts and those captivates our mi- captivate our minds, then we are living for something that is not going to produce value for us eternally. Continue on in verse 7. He paints this picture. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So what Solomon is doing in this, in this passage is he, is he is illustrating the point that he's making. 
So here's a guy. He doesn't have anybody to pass his wealth off onto. He doesn't have brothers. He doesn't, doesn't have a son. But he is someone who, who wealth has captured his heart. He's somebody who wants to be wealthy. He's somebody that wants to be rich. They want to acquire more money. They want to buy nicer things. They want to have uh, more financial security. He's someone whose wealth has captured his heart, and he's working really hard, and he's sacrificing today in order to build that wealth. He's, he's amassing this fortune in order to, to accomplish those things. His life is lived in pursuit of riches, and Solomon says he's not stopping to think, who am I working for? Like, why am I building this at all? Because at some point, he's going to die, and what's going to happen to all that wealth? He's not taking it with him. He's not amassing all of that wealth to, to, get, to gain something later. So he's putting in all this work. He's sacrificing today. He's building up this wealth, and eventually, he's going to pass away. And then what? Like, what was the value and the purpose of all of that wealth creation? What was the point in sacrificing all of that time in order to gain wealth and riches? Once again, he's making the same point that, that wealth is not something to be pursued, is not something that, that should capture our hearts and guide our lives around because it's inherently empty. We will die and we can't take it with us. He makes this point in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Three, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is a, a really interesting point that Solomon makes here. So Solomon here is saying, do not pursue work as a means to, to build up wealth, to build up riches, because that's inherently empty. But you also have to work. Like work is a, a regular part of life. And so you're going to have to do work that is not internally meaningful. And so what Solomon says is the best that I can give you, if, if your whole passion is for riches, if your desire is to work, if that is, the heart, that is what you live for, then the best advice I can give you is just bring someone along. Like, like do it with somebody. Because at least you can share the responsibility, right? At least you can share the burden of the work and, and enjoy the, the, the results, the fruit of it together. Like, at least bring somebody along with you. That's the that is the best advice that Solomon has. Like, if you have to work and, you, and that is the, the, the passion of your heart, if riches is what you're seeking, do it with somebody at least. <laughs> because if you fall, who's going to be there for you? If, if you're bearing all this burden, you're shouldering all of this work, who's going to help you? And if you're enjoying the, 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 the pleasure of the fruit of what your labor, the fruit of your toil, who's going to enjoy it with you? So <laughs> Solomon's point is at least bring somebody along. <laughs> uh, so once again, he's, in, he's telling us and reminding us riches capture our heart. They capture our attention, and they're not something that are inherently valuable. They're not something that's going to matter forever. In fact, the best advice he has is at least share it with somebody while you're here. Third thing that Solomon says captures our heart and attention is glory. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though, I saw, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So Solomon is telling us this this fictional story here. He's painting a picture, and he says, all right, so there's a guy who was born poor, 
in a kingdom and, and, and is ruled by a, by a king who's not very good. He's an unwise king. He's no longer taking advice. And, and the, 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 the whole point of the king in this story is that he's someone whose his dynasty is not going to last any longer. He's been a horrible ruler. He's going to be deposed. There's going to be a revolution or someone's going to take his place. So the king is no longer going to be there. And there's this guy who was born poor in that kingdom, but he was wise. He's an incredibly wise man. And notice what happens in verse 14. He went from, in, from, he went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So he's telling the story of a guy who is in this kingdom, born poor, but he has all this wisdom. And because of his wisdom, because he was able to make the right decisions and the right moves, when, when the d- king was deposed, he made his way up, and he, he is the one that ascended to the throne. Through his wisdom and his shrewdness and his, his keen insights and understanding, he was elevated, and he became king over this kingdom. Even though he was born poor in it, even though he had no chance at it, through his wisdom, He's now king. And notice what Solomon says in verse 15. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So what Solomon is pointing out is that he's looking out and he sees a mass of people, a vast multitude of people in the kingdom. And literally, this guy has elevated himself above them all. Because of his wisdom, because of his insight, he has risen from the lowest ranks, the poorest person, all the way up to the throne. And he has ruled over this entire mass of people, this huge group of people. What Solomon is doing is he is, he is lifting up this guy. He is praising this guy that because of his wisdom, he's literally better than the rest of the masses of people. His wisdom has elevated him up above this group. His talents have shown through, and now he's king. Like if there's anybody worthy of glory, if there's anybody worthy of celebrating and rejoicing in, it's this guy. Because his wisdom is so profound that he rose from poverty to the king by his own merits. When you and I, a lot of us seek glory, glory captures our hearts, the desire to be known, the desire to be praised, the desire to be recognized for our for our works and for who we are, that, that captures our hearts. And so we live in a way that, that seeks to, to get recognition, that seeks to get approval and affirmation from other people. We, we long for that promotion to be recognized in the company, that, that we, we do good work, that we're, we're doing a good job, that we're valuable to this organization. We long for the, the approval of the people around us, that we're smart or that we're kind or that we have a, a good personality. We want, we want that approval from the people around us. We want to... We want to, to do good things and big things and, and, and have a resume that will lift, uh, lift us up and, re- and have people recognize how great we are. We want to get good grades in school so that people recognize how smart we are. I remember I was sitting in, in class my sophomore year of high school when we got our very first class rankings. And the guy in front of me was number two in the class. And he turned around and he held up his class ranking and he said, look at this. Like, just like that. And I'm like a weird way to start a conversation but uh like he's just, like showing me his report card and he's like check it out you know why would he do that <laughs> because he wanted glory he wanted affirmation he wanted me to say yes you are brilliant <laughs> we we have a, a longing and a desire for glory that has captured so many of our hearts and so we live in a way that pleases people we live in a way that makes people happy we live in a way that'll that'll build up our image in the eyes of others and so we will be lifted up and and glorified by other people we'll be affirmed and praised by other people we want to be affirmed and glorified and loved by others 
But no matter how, mu- how worthy of glory we are, uh, it's, this guy is worthy of more. Right? This guy rose to be king because of his wisdom. But notice what Solomon says in verse 16. There's no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after the wind. So here's a guy deserving of so much glory and recognition. Here's a guy that during his life people rejoiced in. But there's going to come a day eventually where no one remembers him. And all that glory that he received, all the affirmation he gained, all the, all the joy that, that, that he got from people telling him uh, good job or thinking highly of him, it's all going to go away. And he'll be long forgotten as some random king in history. When we seek glory, when we seek uh, affirmation from people, eventually there's going to be a day where people forget who we were. They forget the good things we did. They forget the good deeds that we had, the, the good things about us. There's eventually going to be a day where people will no longer remember us. And no matter how much glory we amassed in this life, it'll eventually account for nothing. Solomon's saying even glory even affirmation and love from other people, even, even rejoicing from other people, when it, it, that is a ultimately meaningless, valueless goal. Because eventually one day it's going to be forgotten. And yet despite the fact that all three of these things, justice and riches and glory, despite the fact that these three things are inherently, ultimately empty, they still capture so many of our hearts. And we still allow them to captivate our minds. We still give our hearts over to these things. And we allow our lives to be controlled by a desire for justice and for glory and for riches. We, we allow ourselves to, to live in a way that, that is trying to please people, to live in a way that's trying to get glory from them. We allow ourselves to live in a way that's trying to, to build up wealth, that's trying to make wealth our goal. We allow ourselves to live in a way that thinks that if we just solve this problem or that problem, that the world is going to become a utopia. But we know that those things are inherently, ultimately empty. They do not last, and yet we still give ourselves over to them. We still allow them to capture our hearts and control our lives. But there is something that is inherently more valuable than those things. There is something with eternal, lasting significance, eternal, lasting value, and it's the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's the story of the fact that God created you. He created me. He created each of us, and he loves us. And he created you to have a relationship with him where he would pour out love and goodness and grace and kindness and joy and riches upon you for all of eternity and you will return glory and honor and praise to him that he's due. And yet it's the same story that you and I have all rebelled against God. That we are the cause of the injustice, the brokenness, the evil and wickedness in the world. That it's because we have rejected God and rebelled against him. We have gone our own way and pursued our own paths following after meaningless, inherently empty pursuits because we've rejected God. There is sinfulness, brokenness, wickedness in the world, and our relationship with God has been ruptured. There's a separation between us and God. And yet God loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die on a cross for you so that your sins could be forgiven. Not because you did anything good, not because you, you earned enough credits in his eyes, but just because Jesus died in your place, you can have your sins forgiven. And Jesus rose again from the grave three days later so that through his death and his resurrection, you can have eternal life. 
and spend forever with God in his kingdom. And it's the same story that, that Jesus is going to come back. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming back, and he'll do away with all the injustice and the brokenness in the world, all the sinfulness and rebellion on the planet. He will do away with it, and Jesus will reign for all of eternity over his kingdom where we will live. It's the good news of salvation in Jesus. And when that gospel message captures our heart, it changes everything about our lives. It changes the way we think about ourselves. It changes the way we think about the world, and it changes the way we, we interact. It allows us to not just live for today, but to live for eternity today, and to do things that are inherently, eternally meaningful, impactful, and valuable. For example, when the gospel captures our life, when we think about justice, it allows us to celebrate future justice while showing glimpses of it today. It allows us to, to escape this thought that, that if we just solve this problem or that problem, we're going to create utopia. And it allows us to recognize that, 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 that there will be utopia, that there will be a moment where, where there's no more injustice and no more oppression, and that's going to be the day when Jesus comes back and does away with it. And the sinfulness and brokenness in the world will be done away with. And we look forward to that day. We celebrate the fact that that day is coming. But we also, as people who live today in this planet, which is broken and sinful and messed up, while we're living today, waiting for that day, we can show glimpses of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. We can give the world glimpses of the justice that comes from the Lord, that, that we serve a God who is just, we serve a God who, who, who is not okay with sinfulness and brokenness, and we can show that to the world by helping and to, to end injustice right around us where we are. William Wilberforce is a wonderful example of this. In, 17, in 1780, William Wilberforce became a, a, a government official in, uh, in England. And in 1785, uh, William Wilberforce became a Christian. He placed his faith in Jesus, and that changed everything about his life. And in 1785, part of that change, it, it allowed him to see the, the injustice and the brokenness of the slave trade in England. And he made it his cause because he had power here, because he had the ability to do this. He made it his cause to end the injustice of the slave trade in England, not out of, a, out of a theory that if he just fixed this, the world would be utopia, but because he knows that God is a God of justice and that slavery will not exist in his kingdom. And so he can show by ending slavery in England just a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And William Wilberforce, as the leader of the abolition, uh, abolitionist movement, was a leading figure in the elimination of slavery in England. That is what it looks like as a follower of Jesus whose heart is, is captured by the gospel. And we have this change in our heart and this change in our life where we celebrate the future justice that's coming and we look at the injustice of the world and our heart breaks and we begin to show glimpses of what it will look like in the kingdom of God one day, right where we are, right around us. It changes the way that we think about our money. And we've, again, we've talked about this a lot in the past. We'll talk about this again even more, even on into chapter 5. So I won't go uh, too long here about what it changes our view of money. Again, it changes our, our view of work, that, that we can do good work. We can make beautiful, good things that show people what it's like to be part of the kingdom of God, the goodness and the, the, the great things that are made, the great things that it will be to be part of the kingdom of God. We do good work, and, and we do it well. And the way that we interact with our coworkers, that, that changes the way we view work, but I specifically in this passage, I want to bring to mind the fact that we link our work to our family of faith. 
And when the gospel captures our hearts, there's this combination in our mind that we're not solo Christians who, who are living this solo life, but we are people who, who are part of the body of Christ. We are believers in Jesus, and our work is linked to that. That we aren't accountants who just happen to be Christians and go to church on Sunday, but we are followers of Jesus who are part of a local body of believers who also happen to be accountants. The way that this plays out is we view our work as a way to, to help further the ministry of the church, maybe through resources. So we use part of the payments and the income that we get from that to, to further the missions and ministry of the church by using our resources financially in the way that glorifies God. We also view our work as a way to expand the kingdom of God, that we view uh, where we are in our community as our church going out into the world and reaching the people around us with the gospel. So we view our work in light of the fact that we're, you're not, what, what happens here on Sunday is not divorced from what happens on Monday. And that you're going out into the world, living as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, living on mission, being sent out from your local body of Christ to go proclaim the gospel to the world. It may also change the way you think about uh, accepting a job that moves you. So if you, if you think about uh, you have an offer to, to move for a job, instead of just accepting that job and hoping that you find a good church where you go, the fact that you link your work and your family of faith together, it means that, that whether or not there's a good church where you're going to go becomes one of the deciding factors of whether you take it. Instead of, instead of deciding and hoping that you find something there, that becomes part of the equation to decide whether you take it at all. Our, our work is no longer divorced from, from our faith, but we link it together because our hearts are, are, are captured by the gospel. Lastly, instead of seeking for our own glory, when our heart is captured by the gospel, we help others rejoice in the Lord. Because as, as worthy of glory as we might be, God is infinitely more worthy of glory. No matter how many good things we do, God is infinitely better. <laughs> he is infinitely more mighty and, and, and powerful. And, and while our glory will fade and no longer be remembered here on earth, God's glory is eternal and will last forever. His glory is worthy. He is worthy of glory and honor and praise now and forever. And so as people whose hearts are captured by the gospel, we go out and we live in a way that not, doesn't bring us glory, that doesn't bring rejoicing in us, but that helps people rejoice in the Lord. And bring him praise and glory and the honor that he's due. We go out and we proclaim the gospel so that people will see the Lord. That people will understand just how good he is and how much he loves them. And they rejoice in him. We help one another lift our eyes up to him when we're, tr when we're distracted, when we struggle, when, when we encounter difficulties in life. We, we turn each other up to the Lord and help each other rejoice in him. Instead of seeking our own glory, we seek to make the Lord famous. Uh, a good example of this was uh, when I was in high school. There's a girl that went to our high school who was a phenomenal softball player and uh, easily rec like recognized as being really good and, and, and achieved and earned a lot of accolades, a lot of glory and praise for her ability to play softball. But she wasn't in it to try to, to bring notoriety and fame to herself. And every week she would go out uh, to her, her softball team and she would minister to them for Christ and he, she would start bringing some of them to church. And eventually, ultimately, by the end of her time in high school, most of the softball team was coming to church. And they were praising the Lord together. So instead of trying to make herself famous, instead of trying to get her own glory, she was helping others rejoice in the Lord. When we as Christians have the gospel at the core of everything we do, when the gospel captures our heart, it changes everything 
about our lives, and we begin to think eternally. We begin to lift our affections up to the Lord and help others do the same. So church, stop getting distracted and allowing your heart to get torn away and distracted by things that won't matter forever. Stop allowing things in this world that are eternally, inherently empty to, to grab your affections, to grab your attention, and to control the way that you live and start grasping the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus, lifting your eyes up to Christ and allow that to impact and change the way that you live and the way that you think and the way you interact with others. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the good news of salvation in Jesus, God, that we have hope and life in him. God, that we are sinners, broken people, and God, you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus, to die for us. God, I pray that that gospel message will drive everything about us. God, I pray we would be so in love with you and our minds so captivated by the gospel, God, that it would change everything about us, that our lives would look different because we are so consumed by you. God, I pray revival would come in this church and in our community as we go out with a message of go the gospel on our lips, as we believe it and know it and celebrate it together, and we go out with that glorious good news to the world around us. Father, I pray that, that the gospel would affect and impact everything in our lives. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who've never placed their faith in you, who have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, who, don't, who haven't put their faith in the gospel message. God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they would trust in you, that their hearts would be captured by the gospel, their minds would be captivated by your glory and your goodness and your grace. And God, this morning would be the morning that they know of the eternal life that comes from Christ. Father, we love you and praise you. In the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray.